0: chapter of Romans if you'd like to look there you know that the church could be established in what the Bible says Joseph laid up during the seven years of plenty while there was opportunity to lay up while the fields were producing while there was good so that in the famine they'd have something that would sustain them our world's turning against the truth, and they're, they're working towards outlawing it. Day by day, we're getting closer and closer as they play on the sensitivities and hurting feelings over complete ignorance and foolishness. And you know, people people would say you're crazy for saying that. That's never going to happen. Ten years ago, you'd have said it's crazy to think that there's a man that says he's a woman that's an admiral in the United States military. They just did it. A four star admiral is a man that thinks he's a woman. Now, you tell me we're not crazy. Our world's going crazy, and we better lay up in our heart and be established on the truth while there's time and while there's opportunity. God's blessed us with some years of plenty to get established in the truth. And I. I truly believe we ought to take advantage of every opportunity the Lord gives us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Word of God. So in this 8th chapter, we've been walking down through these verses here, got down to about verse 15, and thinking about the regeneration of the believer, and that work is accomplished by the Spirit. And He's revealed that here, the indwelling of the Spirit. Those that are without the indwelling of the Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. There is there's no other option there. It's not, well, if you do this, you'll be all right. But the, the baseline that the Word of God lays out for me and you to lay ourselves down beside is either the Spirit of God dwells in me or He does not. If He does, then we have received the Spirit of adoption that changes our mind, our thoughts, our likes, our wants, our hates, our desires. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. And we cry unto God out of the depths of our heart, Abba, Father. Or we're without the Spirit of God, no matter what our life looks like, and we're not children of God, we don't belong to God. And so he says here, you've not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. And we talked last time, the spirit of bondage, the spirit of a slave. And that spirit of serving because, well, we have to or there's going to be judgment. And that's, that's truly the motivation for a pile of service, a pile of church going, a pile of things that go on is well, God's going to destroy Or God's going to bring judgment. And it's a, I have to do this, or God might. It's the spirit of a slave and fear of the master. Well, that's not what's in the children of God today. That was the Old Testament. That was under the law. God said, I've showed myself to Israel in this manner that they might not sin, that they might be afraid. And when they go to sin, that they'd remember my fear my power and my authority. But in the children of God, there's a new spirit, the spirit of God. And it's the spirit of adoption. The spirit where we realize and recognize that God has selected us out of the world of lost people, out of a world filled with really, you talk about orphans, a world that's under the power and authority of the devil, the Lord has selected us by His love and adopted us into His family, made us as one of His children, realizing and recognizing the love that God shed upon us. Now inwardly the people of God have a desire to serve God, a love for God in the inward man, And that's motivating the service. So that as John says in 1 John, his commandments are not grievous. It's not a grievous burden to have to come to church, to have to seek God's face. But in them that are saved, the grace of God within them produces that inward desire. It's there by the power and the work of God. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself... Beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now we looked at this just for a minute last time. But notice in these verses that there is two spirits. There is the Spirit of God and there is my Spirit. And John says in 1 John, very familiar Scripture, we well know it. To try the spirits whether they are of God. The Spirit of God is not the only Spirit that there is. But the Spirit, He is the only true power of God. There is a Spirit of emotion that gets stirred up a lot of times. There's a Spirit, there's all manner. We're not even going to try to go through. But there's all manner of things in the flesh that stirs our spirit of the flesh up. The spirit of anger. We can get that going. and We can get angry at sin. But that's not the spirit of God. That's my spirit. And we need to be able to differentiate what's coming from me, what's coming from man, and what comes from God. I might be motivated to do something. Because somebody else done something. Does that mean that's the Spirit of God? The real testimony here is that my Spirit and God's Spirit bear witness together. It's that they, the, the word there means to testify jointly, to corroborate by concurrent evidence. So my Spirit is producing evidence of salvation. But the Spirit of God is bearing witness with that, testifying to the fact that this is indeed the truth. Now that is the testimony that's acceptable, that's true, and that the church can lay their hands on and agree with. That God has bore witness. Now, can it be with tears? Certainly. My spirit can cause me to be in tears. Can it be loud and joyous? Certainly it can. But none of that matters. People think crying. That'll work. That maybe praying louder. That that'll work. That shouting. Shouting always works. But without the Spirit of God, there's no witness. So we ought not look at the spirit of the person that's producing that, but what we ought to look for. And that, that's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. I know no man after the flesh. He's not looking to the flesh, to the spirit of the flesh. God, Paul said, I'm looking for the presence of the witness of the spirit of God. Because outside of the spirit of God, they, it's not of God did not originate, does not come from, and God does not agree with. No matter what's said or what's done, the Holy Ghost bears witness. And He bears witness in a way, as Anthony said, I believe it was Anthony, or maybe it was Kevin. I'm sorry, fellas, I can't remember who read the verse. But no man spake like this man, He bears witness in a manner that it's unmistakable who is speaking and who's moving and it's in the rumbling of the heart that the Spirit of God witnesses. It's not in what's said in the ear, but it's in the heart that the Spirit of God beareth witness with our spirit. He says in John chapter 14, The Lord Jesus is telling His disciples that He's going away. In verse 15, If you love Me, keep My commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So this is the promise of God. Jesus Christ, as, and, and notice what he says. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. <clears throat> so who's dwelling with them? Well, at this time, the Lord Jesus was dwelling with them. He slept where they slept. He ached where they ate. He was dwelling with them. But the day was coming that the Spirit of God was going to be in them. And they would not be left comfortless. They're not going to be left on their own in a world of wickedness and darkness. But the Comforter of God is going to dwell with them. And so Stephen, very familiar Stephen preaches a message to the Jews there and they gnash on him with their teeth and they take him and they're going to stone him to death. And as he's being stoned or it's before he's being stoned he sees Jesus. The heavens opened and he sees Jesus standing. You know what he had? In a place where everybody there hated him and wanted him dead and did kill him. He had a comforter there that was with him that gave him peace and peace enough for the man's last words to be Father forgive him. Now that's not of a man but there was a comforter present with him as was all. In 1 John chapter 5, now this is what the Bible says here. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 8. There are three that bear witness to testify in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. So that, that those words there, Witness. They're the same word. They mean evidence given. So if you receive evidence from men, know that the evidence from God is greater. God is the greater witness. God is the one that man ought to be looking for and seeking to. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. This is God's witness. You know, God bore witness to Christ Jesus. But... God also bears witness to His children today that are saved and born again in the same manner. By the Spirit of God, He provides evidence that these are His children. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness, the evidence given, in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record Same word, evidence given that God gave to testify of His Son. So them that are saved, they have the evidence of salvation in them. What is that? It's the Spirit and the presence and the power of God within them. God's Spirit is the witness, the evidence provided unto His children... Of salvation, Now we read the scripture of the comforter. We're going to see that as well. The Spirit of God is a regenerator. He makes new creatures out of them that are saved and born again. The Spirit of God is their witness. He is their proof and evidence that they belong to God. He is the earnest. Not only is He a witness to you that I'm saved, but He's my earnest as well. That I know, I know without question when the Lord comes back, He's getting me. Because of the Spirit and the earnest of the Spirit that He's provided. So the Regenerator, the Evidence, the Earnest, and if children, then Heirs. So He's going to reveal what we are, Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. So heir, a partitioning, receiving by appointment. You know how that works? People have a will. And when they die, who gets what? Well, the will appoints. Who gets what? This son gets this. This son gets that. And if there's no will, it goes to the next of kin. But the will is there to divide up, to partition the goods, and to give it by appointment. And the person that makes those decisions is the one that the stuff belongs to. I can't give my children something that's not mine. It's got to be something that belongs to me and then I can appoint what I'm going to give to who. I can make that decision. I can make the decision not to leave anything to them. I mean, we, that can be done. And so the heir, this is something that's been appointed not by the, not by the heir themselves, but by the one that the stuff belongs to. Heirs of God and joint heirs, a co-heir, a participant in common. So them that are saved are heirs of God. God has appointed them an heir of His majesty, glory, and kingdom. But it goes even deeper than that. Not only are we in God's will and last testament, if you'll have it, But we're made co-heirs. A joint heir. A participant in common with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at His children, I mean, we're not natural born. Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. And we're just adopted in by the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God. But you know what the Lord did? He made us to be co-heirs. Equal with the Lord Jesus receiving the same thing that He's going to receive. Now we know this, that through the book, you got a lot of pictures of what salvation is. Here, we're talking about adoption. And in Revelation, and in other places, in Ephesians as well, you see the church referred to as a bride. In Revelation chapter 19... Verse number 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. In Revelation 21, I heard a great voice saying, The tabernacle of God is with and I'm sorry, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's expressly spoken there that I don't think it could be argued with. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So it's talked about as a marriage there. And you know in a marriage, and our world, our world's so mixed up today, I, I, I understand that there's great confusion here. But in truth now, if I inherit something, my wife, she inherits it too. Because of her relationship to me, she gets to join in and enjoy the inheritance that I would receive. You see that? And so the church, those that are adopted in, those that are married to Christ for salvation, we are part of his body. As Christ receives glory, honor, majesty from the uh, God the Father, so also we join and share in that inheritance by our tie to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord suffered, and because the Lord died, because He resurrected, and because He selected us to save us and bring us into His family, we get to enjoy the same glory that the Lord Jesus enjoys. We're going to be with Him, counted as Him, in the sight of Almighty God. So if, now this is thrown in there, that we may be glorified together, if so be that we suffer with Him. So there's going to have to be then suffering. That means to experience pain jointly or of the same kind. There must be then suffering in order for there to be glory. So let's look now in Matthew chapter 16. We're we're so disconnected from the time that this was written. In the time that this was penned down to the church at Rome, the church and professed believers in Christ, they were hated by all men. And the shops and businesses and places... They wouldn't let people that were known Christians to operate in their economy. Sound familiar? You can't come in our shop. You can't work here. You can't make money. You can't buy or sell. We don't want anything to do with you because of this. Well, that's the way it was in this day. And those that were professed Christians... Suffered greatly. We we can't even understand. We can't grasp a hold of the suffering that these people endured. Just in the economy of the time. But as well they were killing them. They were burning them alive. They were heating up giant grills and grilling them alive. They were taking off heads. All manner of murder and suffering that they endured at this time. We're we're very disconnected from that. And we're very blessed. It's been seven years of plenty, I would say. But in Matthew still, though, that doesn't mean that there's no suffering. Though in God's truth, there's no comparison today to then. In Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 24, then Jesus said unto His disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In John, again, chapter 12, verse number 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So what kind of suffering here? Well here is a denial of self and this is a denial in every way. This is me laying down completely what I think I am, what I've presented myself to you to be, laying self down and taking up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That man, and you know, we could talk about it, to those that's never been in a place of conviction, in a place on their knees before God, begging for mercy and redemption, warring against the flesh and the thinkings of the carnal mind, to them that's never endured such a battle day by day with their own self, they've got no idea what you're talking about. But this warfare and struggle that we looked at in the previous chapters... There's a great deal of denial of what this man wants in order to please God. And folks, if there's no denial of self, if there's no laying self down, if there's no humbling down, boy, I tell you, that's hard for people to do. That's right. It's hard to come down and be less. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, if, if there's no coming down, If there's no humbleness, then there's no salvation. This says if we suffer with Him. If there's no life change, and if there's no denying this man, if there's no taking up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be guaranteed that there's no salvation. That's not talking about works either. Remember, regeneration is the work of the Spirit of God. If there's no regeneration, there's no salvation. Period. There can't be. And so, if children, if so be that we suffer with Him, we may be also glorified together. So, we've got, and I I said this, I said it a little early, but the Spirit, He is the regenerator, the changer of the life. He's the comforter that dwells with man and comforts him in trouble and in persecution. He's the guide into the truth. He helps me to understand what God says and overcome what I think. Boy, there's a warfare as well. But remember, he says in Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds the things that I've believed and I've thought and my opinions that I would stand and argue for hours, God's pulled a lot of them down because they were wrong. I was wrong. And the Spirit of God, He's there to guide me to the truth and away from my deceivings and my deceptions. But not only that, He's my assurance of salvation. He's my witness to you and to the world of my salvation, but He's also my companion and strength in suffering. So He says in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the suffering life of a Christian however that it may be. Paul says, I recognize this, that what we're enduring here, reckon that word means to take an inventory or to estimate. So as Paul says, I've got the ledger out and I'm taking an inventory of all my sufferings. And he does that in a place or two. We won't turn and look. But at all the sufferings and the inventory of what Paul endured, what Paul suffered, and I'd say that's just a very small piece of what Christ cost Paul in this life. But Paul says, as I look at the inventory and I see all the suffering and the pain and the doing without that I've endured, I can look to the glory that's coming. I mean, we're going to be heirs of God and join heirs of Christ. We're going to have a body, not like Adam's body that we have today, we're going to have a body that's like the risen Savior's. Paul says, I realize that the sufferings that I'm enduring here is not even worthy to be compared. Worthy, deserving, or comparable. It's not even comparable to the glory that God's got for those that He's redeemed. They did suffer greatly. There were people burned alive. There were people that were martyred. Many people were martyred and suffered great pain and affliction in leaving this world. Our Lord Jesus. Our example. The great example. But you know the glory that they received? Once the suffering here was over, he he likens it to a woman in travail bringing forth a child down near to death in pain, in sorrow, and in suffering there, laboring to bring forth a child. But the minute that's over and the doc lays that babe on the chest, the joy of that, everything else is forgotten. Well, of the glory that's coming to them that are saved when this travail is over, the salvation, the redemption, and the inheritance of the church far outweighs what we'll endure here in this life. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's there's an already and there's a not yet. The church is saved, the church is adopted. The church is Christ's body. The church is indwelled by the Spirit. And we are inheritors of God's appointment. But we've not yet received the fullness of it. As wonderful as what we have here is, there is yet more to come and more to gain. So he says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, Verse number 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says this, and you think about those words, our light affliction. Now, if we saw with our eyes what Paul was suffering and had suffered, there's no way we would say our light affliction. We would say he has been greatly afflicted. But Paul says, I recognize this. I'm suffering. I'm going to suffer. But it's just for a moment. It's just for a few days. We just mentioned at the start how quickly the end of the month rolls around. It's hard to keep track of. You know what's happening? Life's going. What you're looking at is temporary. My time as a Sunday school teacher is temporary. My time to go and preach is temporary. Greg's time to pastor and preach you the gospel, it's temporary. Time is quickly running out. And the labor will be over one day. Paul says it's temporary. I'm not looking on what's temporary, but I'm looking towards God at the things that are eternal. Boy, people's got it backwards today. And we're looking on the temporary. We're looking on what's going on today with no thought to the end and the eternal. Because you can flip this and it's just as true that the church no matter what they endured that suffering's not comparable to the glory that there is. Well I say this as well the suffering that a man can endure here is uncomparable to the suffering of them that are lost and undone and lift their eyes in hell. And as much as can be gained And as much joy as could be had in this temporary life, it's just that temporary. And, you know, we've already mentioned the seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty down in Egypt. Those seven years of famine, they ate the years of plenty. And they were so grievous, the years of plenty were forgotten. Boy, I tell you, the good of this life Honest to God, the good of this life will be a curse in hell. It'll be a witness and a testimony against us of the goodness of God towards us while we were here and we neglected the gospel. So what ought we to be looking at? We ought to be looking at the eternal. We ought to be looking at what's after this world because everything here, everything is temporary. Everything is perishing. Everything is going away. So he says back in Romans again, chapter 8, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you think about Moses. Moses left Pharaoh's house and Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be a prince of Egypt and he refused the wealth that Pharaoh had he refused the authority that could be had in that kingdom so that he could as the Bible says wander in the wilderness and suffer affliction now that by the thinking of man is a very bonehead decision wouldn't you say I mean now you you flip back to me and I've got a job here, and I'm making an absolute fortune, and I say, well, I'm going to quit that job, and I'm going to leave that good money, and I'm going to suffer affliction, and be poor, and wander around in a wilderness. You'd say, that man is an idiot, and he's wasted. And don't you reckon they said that about Moses down in Egypt? Don't you reckon that Pharaoh said what? Has got into this young'un. He lived with him 40 years. Why would he leave everything that we've got? We've got everything he could have ever wanted. Moses saw and had respect to the recompense of the reward. Moses said, I can gain for a little while down here in Egypt, but it's temporary. And I'm gonna die in Egypt. And I'm going to lift my eyes in hell with no salvation. Or I can go suffer for a few years. I can go and be poor and wander in the wilderness and have nothing and suffer affliction and be hated by the people and be rejected. But when I leave this world, I'll be in heaven. Now best I can tell, that was 3,500 years ago. Thereabouts. That's reasonably close. That Moses lived. Moses lived about 120 years that he suffered. 80 years that he suffered. 40 of it was in Pharaoh's house. But he's been dead and gone for 3,500. Now what do you reckon then? The last 3,500 years compares to his 80 that he had. Would you trade that? Would you trade 80 years for $3,500? Would you trade $80 for $3,500? Would you trade 80 cents for $35? There is, There's no comparison. James and Joel have got enough sense to know that there's no comparison there. But you know what that 3500 is? Now when you compare to 80, 3500's a long time. But you compare 3500 to a million, 3500's insignificant then. That's just a little fraction. If I had a million dollars in my pocket, I wouldn't even know it to buy something for $3500. But we're talking about eternity. Forever and ever, and ever. An amount of time that I can't understand. I can't understand how long. 3,500 years. That's just about out of my ability to perceive. But man is laying his eternal life after this temporary one. He's going to spend 80 years, 90 years of this temporary life in pleasure and he's going to leave this world and have eternity afterwards in suffering. Now, how foolish! Who's the stupid one? I tell you, Moses. Moses come out a winner. Pharaoh died in the Red Sea, and in hell he is and has been. Now, what do you reckon that extra eighty years on the throne? if that was the same Pharaoh that was there when Moses left, what do you think that got him? I I hope you can see that. Moses suffered affliction. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we've got a great explanation, I believe, that when the church, when that resurrection occurs and death is swallowed up In victory. You know what the greatest enemy my flesh is going to face? It's death. Because you know, when this flesh dies, everything with the flesh dies with it. I know in the flesh and in the the spirit of emotion, we think family ties and marriages and children, well, that just goes on when you die. But that's not true. The man that is the father to my boys, you're looking at him. And you know where he goes? He goes back to the grave. He goes back to the dust. That's the greatest enemy that the flesh has is death. But you know to them that are saved, the greatest enemy is going to be defeated one day and death is going to be swallowed up in victory that the church is going to stand one day over their own graves in victory over death by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And them that are lost, they're going to stand in victory over a grave and be cast into a lake of fire that burneth forever and ever. Is there any comparison between the two? Would you trade? Would you trade a job for it? You're going to trade money? We're we're going to lose. You are going to lose outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory which shall be revealed in us. Now we've got a section here that all goes together. And... I would say, a a difficult Scripture in the sense that it's been disagreed on uh, since it's been written, I would say. But let's read now. Let's read verse 19 down through about 23. And I don't think we'll have time to get through all of those, but we'll get started. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. So let's look at some of these words in verse 19. The earnest expectation, intense anticipation. They are intensely anticipating. The creature waiteth. The creature means original formation. Waiteth means to expect fully. And manifestation means full disclosure. So the creature, he is earnestly anticipating the disclosure, the revelation of the sons of God. Now, I realize our lives are very blessed and maybe for the most part, we're not looking that way all the time. But you know, you put yourself in a suffering place and, and if you get to a place that you're suffering greatly in this life, you know what you're going to look to? Even even the original formation that's travailing and suffering in pain He's going to look to, I'd like to be redeemed from this. I'd like to be delivered from the sufferings of this body. And so, the creature, the original formation, is waiting, and that's that's to expect fully. There's a confidence here. And looking for and intensely anticipating the manifestation of the sons of God. Uh, I'll never forget... Morgan's mamaw, she had literally just got, in the flesh, she just got terrible news. Just a little while left, you've got no hope, you're going to die. And I remember we went to visit her after that, and she said, I'm kind of excited to see what it's going to be like when I get there. Mm -hmm. You know what that was? There was anticipation that was there of the manifestation of the sons of God. She expected it. She was confident in it. And that's there in the church. As time goes on, and I say, as years add up on this body, as we draw nearer to that time, the expectation and the anticipation grows in the heart of them that are saved. I want to know what it's going to be like when I'm with the Lord. I want to know what it's going to be like to anticipate and to expect fully. For the creature was made subject to subordinate, to place under as a soldier. This is the picture here, not willingly. It's like in the military. You go and you sign your name. And they don't bring the sergeants out and say, all right, pick which one you want. They say, you are there. And you don't give lip, and you don't question, and you don't back up on them, but you're put where they want you, and that's the way it is. Well, that's what he's saying here. The creature, the original formation, he was made subject, subordinated, placed under as a soldier, not willingly, That word means voluntarily. It wasn't a decision. And he was made subject to vanity. Now that word vanity, it means moral depravity. Was it man's will to be morally depraved? Did man ever, did Adam and Eve want that? Was that what they were thinking? <clears throat> what about them that are saved? See, they, they have the power of God within, but were made subject to the depravity and the sinfulness and the wickedness of this world. Not because that's what I want, but the one that subjected me in hope, now that's what he says, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So the one that's give us hope has also subjected us to vanity. And you know what that produces? I I like this picture. When the children of Israel were in Egypt and Pharaoh stirred up the taskmasters against them and made their labor hard and he took away their straw. And made their labor harder. And he said they're getting too many. Throw their youngins in the river when they're born. You know what's going on? The children of Israel, they're being made subject to vanity that they don't want to suffer through. They're being made subject to sufferings that they'd rather not face. But you know what that's doing in them? Where they were glad and happy to dwell for 430 years in Egypt... God subjecting them to this vanity is stirring up a desire in them for deliverance. They didn't choose that. But you know what they started doing? Calling on God for help. Now if there was no suffering here, if everything was good, perfect, and easy all the time, Life was never a burden. There were no pains. There were no sufferings, and it just went on and on and on. Would anybody look to God for anything? That's right. Would anybody need the Lord? Even saved people, the God's truth: if life's easy and never any trouble, are they going to seek the Lord? I'll tell you what'll put man on his knees is some trouble. Is God subjecting you to a little bit of suffering? Is God putting you under something that's hard to bear and hard to carry? Well, I don't want to suffer. Well, nobody ever has. Nobody's ever wanted to endure trouble. Nobody's ever wanted to have to weep and to cry. Nobody's ever wanted to have to endure the suffering of this world. But you know, God has subjected man to that. God's put us under that by reason of Him who has subjected the same in hope because the creature itself. So let's just say this. There's arguing here what he's talking about. Whether this is saved people or lost people or people at all. But I think right here, because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He's not talking about lost people. But even the bodies, the natural flesh that is subjected to vanity, it's enduring sin, round about it all the time, enduring trouble and suffering, on it all the time, life that is burdensome and troublesome, even this man, the body, is going to be delivered from the suffering of this life and this world. So delivered to liberate. Bondage is slavery. And corruption is decay and ruin. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's not just saved people that endure suffering, but it's the whole creation. Even the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air. You know what this life is? It's a continual labor. It's a continual work. The birds continually work to eat and stay alive. Some, they migrate. The cattle, they eat continually to keep their body alive and to live. And man works and labors continually to have that and to be pleasured and to be pleased. And life is continually a trouble and a burden. And the lost people, they suffer too. You know I I realize the devil likes to tell well you're suffering and God's just picking on you but lost people they lose loved ones they lose family they endure sickness they go through hardships and they suffer just like saved people suffer. I tell you what it is it's the devil working in the carnal mind that leads us to believe some of these things that it's just us and God doesn't care. David said, my feet almost slipped. David had the same the same thought as he looked on the sin that was in our world. And yet, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. Not that they're ready to be delivered. It doesn't say that they're expecting delivery. But it says it's groaning and travailing. Suffering and enduring just like we are. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So there's the difference between a lost and dying world and saved people. Jacob said of this life. Jacob said it's a few days. No, Jacob said few and evil are my days. And Job said that life was a few days and full of trouble. And that is the nature of this life unto all them that go through it. Some some don't suffer as much as others. We can say that, but all suffer, all endure, and there is an end to it all. Even as good as life could be, there's an end to that as well. And as Colin read, we're all going to appear before Christ in the judgment. And so John chapter 17. Now you think about the subjection of the children of God to this world. Here's Jesus praying for the church and them that would believe. And in verse 14 of John chapter 17, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil so here's the work of god there's there's the church that is subjected to the depravity of the world we're not saved and immediately called into heaven but we're left here in the world left here to labor left here to work and the god's truth left here to suffer for a little while jesus suffered should I think it unfair that I would suffer? But the Lord prayed not that He would take us out, but that He would keep us and protect us from the evil of it. I've got several more scriptures. Maybe we'll read one more and we'll have to stop because we're out of time. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14... Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So the Word of God says, do things without murmurings and disputings that you might be a burning light in the midst of darkness and a crooked and a perverse nation. So there is why that the Lord has left the church here. There's labor to do. There's work to do. And we're to be a light amongst the darkness of this world. We got a lot more scripture looking at those few verses that we read. We'll look at those next time. Anybody got anything on your heart you'd like to say or add?